we're starting a new chapter in Mark today. We're in Mark 14. We're going to take the first 11 verses. You know, we only have three chapters left, 14, 15, and 16, and we're going to be done with the whole gospel of Mark. But you know, now that we're getting to these last three chapters, we know what's around the corner. Jesus is going to die. He's going to be executed on a cross. So we are in the the days leading up to, to that moment. And in Mark's gospel, he, he lets us know that this is something that wasn't a knee-jerk reaction moment, like at this Passover feast we've been studying the past several weeks. Mark lets us know from really early, early on in his gospel, back in chapter 3, he starts talking about how the religious elite are opposing Jesus. They, they don't like the attention that he's getting. They don't like the fact that he's gaining all of this popularity and all of these followers. And so they begin to follow him around and, and looking for any little detail they can find to, to really, you know, uh, just throw mud at him. And so one of the first moments we're, we're told this in the Gospel of Mark is in Mark chapter 3. Remember when Jesus is in the synagogue there. He's there on the Sabbath, and he heals a man with a withered hand. And so these Pharisees, they're looking for something wrong. They're not looking for anything that's going right. And so they realize, hey, wait a second. He's healing someone on the Sabbath. You can't work on the Sabbath. And so literally from that point, years in the past from where we are in, on the timeline, uh, today in 14, but years in the past, they begin to hel- hold counsel with the Herodians, that powerful family of that day, to be able to to plot with them, how can we destroy Jesus? How can we kill him? And so again, we're we're getting really close to this moment where Jesus is crucified, but it is not any knee-jerk reaction. This is something that has been in the making for several years leading up to this point. And so chapter 14 reminds us of how close we are and how even in this moment in in chapter 14, they don't know how they're going to do it yet, But they are plotting and scheming as these things are unfolding in in the Passover festival. So let's just read the first two verses with me here. It says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So whenever... Whenever all the Jews around Israel gathered to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast, we've got we to gotta understand the dynamics that are at play here. You know, sometimes when we're preaching through the gospel, I, I always like to encourage us, as we're reading these moments, to put ourselves in the minds of the people in that day. And we're going to do a lot of that today in these different moments that we're thinking about. We want to put ourselves in their shoes to understand why they're doing and saying the things that they're doing. And so, when the, at the Passover feast, this is celebrating their freedom from slavery. And so for centuries, Jews would gather to the temple and celebrate Passover, that 10th that plague, the, the climax of all of those plague, plagues from back in Egypt when they were enslaved to the Egyptians, the 10th plague where the firstborn son of every household would be killed by the angel of death. But God's people were instructed to slaughter a lamb, to smear blood on the doorposts of their home. And when the angel of death came into the area, it would pass over the homes who had obeyed God's instruction. And then they would feast on that lamb and prepare to leave from slavery. And so that, that moment in their history, a huge part of their identity. We are Jews. We, we, were, 
we, we, were, uh, we were saved from slavery and the, the, the Passover, the angel passed over us and, and we were set free. I mean, this is part of who they are. There was a really strong sense of nationalistic pride when it came to the Passover feast. And so, again, generation after generation celebrating the same festival year after year, and they would be so proud to be a Jew and to remember this moment and God's work in redeeming them from slavery. And so now you got to realize in the day of Jesus, think, get, get into their minds for a second. They were, it was as if they were enslaved again. They weren't slaves like in the sense that they were enslaved to the Egyptians, but they were conquered by Rome. They are not ultimately in charge. Rome is in charge. So now the generation that was alive during Jesus' day, they were celebrating the Passover, but they were thinking things like, man, we're celebrating our freedom, but are we really free? We're paying all these taxes to the imperial cult, doing all of these, forced to do these blasphemous things. They couldn't stand it. And so over the years and over the centuries, there would be various revolts at this time of year, whenever they had this strong sense of pride to be, to be a Jew. And so these revolts would, would rise up, and they would try to fight back against Rome. And so this time of year was a time that Rome was on high alert. They were on high alert. They would bring in all sorts of troops into Jerusalem there. They had uh, a huge army ready in case anything like that happened. And so the chief priests and the scribes, they know as, they, as much as they want to kill Jesus, as much as they want to arrest him, they're like, we, we can't afford any sort of riot. This is, this, is their, this is the main obstacle in front of them. All these years they've been trying to plot and scheme on how they can kill Jesus, but they can't afford to start a riot because the people loved Jesus. So how can we arrest him by stealth and kill him? How are we going to do it? They didn't know. At this point in time, they didn't know. They didn't have that piece of the puzzle to know how they could pull this off and not tick off Rome and hurt themselves in the process. So Mark tells us this piece of information, and now he's going to press pause on that so that we can better understand the dynamics of their plot. He pauses from that, and he tells us about this moment of Jesus anointing in Bethany. And then he's going to come back to that kill plot. Because by the end of this anointing in Bethany, we're going to have that piece that they were looking for. That piece of the puzzle they needed to be able to arrest him by stealth and have him killed. But there's so many other dynamics at play in this anointing at Bethany that this passage of scripture is such a tremendous blessing in understanding what's going on. But it's also very convicting in when we think about how we worship and why. So I want us to think about maybe our approach to Jesus, our approach to worship. What's, our, what's the posture of our hearts as we think about the gospel today? But let's, let's ponder those things as we study about Jesus being anointed at Bethany. Let's take verses 3 through 5. It says, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. All right, let's stop there for a second. So he's in Bethany. Bethany is just outside Jerusalem, about two miles away. They're at the house of Simon the leper. 
Now, there's multiple Simons mentioned in the New Testament. It's a very, very common name. But this is Simon the leper. And we don't know anything about Simon other than he's the leper. (laughs) So we can draw, though, some reasonable conclusions about Simon the leper. If they are meeting at the house of Simon the leper, he has leprosy. What does this tell us about Simon? He doesn't have leprosy anymore. He's known as the man who had leprosy, but now he doesn't. So it's very reasonable then to think, and we know why historically we believe, this is someone who Jesus healed. And so Simon's like, please come to my house. I have an appreciation dinner for you. You healed. I mean, he he was living a real life nightmare. There's no cure for leprosy in that day. He wouldn't have had any contact with his family. His career's over. His life's over. Family time over. He would have had to live with all the other lepers away from his family. But Jesus reversed all of that. He's now Simon the leopard who was the leper. I always want to say leopard. Even when I, even when I sing that, the, the, the hymn we were singing earlier, uh, he uh, changed the, the leper's spots. I always want to say change the leopard's spots. Because I think of leopards having spots. I've always been thrown off by that. It's funny that that came out in an actual sermon now. But so this is Simon who had leprosy and was healed. And so at Simon's house, this appreciation dinner for Jesus and his disciples, we're told that the woman is there. Now this woman, I tell you this every week, if you study a moment in one of the Gospels, You always need to ask yourself, does this exact same moment exist in any of the other Gospels? Because if so, I need to read them all. Because they all, because all of them together are going to give me all the pieces I need to understand this moment. And this is so important when it comes to Jesus being anointed at Bethany. We can read about this in Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 13. This is your homework text. And and you really need to go read John chapter 12 verses 1 through 8, which I'm going to talk about several of those details as we think about this. But this same moment are are in those two Gospels. And what we'll find is that this woman has a name. Her name is Mary. And her sister's name is Martha. And their brother's name is Lazarus. And they're all there. This is Lazarus whom Jesus raised from the dead. This appreciation dinner is more than just Simon throwing a party because his life, is, his nightmare is, has been reversed. But this is Lazarus, who was dead, Mary and Martha. This is their, their brother who was brought back to life. I mean, these real-life nightmares that these people were living, Jesus miraculously undid these doomed scenarios. And so think about that. I mean, doesn't that change how you think about this moment? What, what expense would you spare if you were Mary and Martha and Simon, what expense would you spare? I mean, if you lost someone in your immediate family, can you, can you, I mean, I was at a funeral just this week where a friend of ours we've known for a long, long time in his 30s died. And just mourning with their family and, and showing our respect and trying to comfort them, I just, oh, your heart just goes out to people in these situations. And as I'm studying this passage this week and thinking about that funeral, I'm like, man, can you imagine being Mary and Martha? You lost your brother. And then this man, Jesus, shows up and he undoes that nightmare. What, what expense would you spare to show your appreciation to someone who undid that? Like your nightmare is over. You, take all my stuff. 
It's all yours. I'd trade it all. Who cares about stuff when you've lost a family member like that? Just, you can have anything. I can't thank you enough. So when you're Mary in this moment, Mary is like, I, I don't want to spare a single expense. I want to thank him in the most extravagant way I can possibly think of. And she does exactly that. She, she has an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard which means nothing to us, <laughs> right, in our context. Nard, mmm, sounds tasty. This is perfume. To say that it was very costly is a, is a drastic understatement. The only way you would have even been able to have this is if it was imported from India. Uh, so it, you, you couldn't have gotten it any, anywhere in Israel. It was imported from India, and this would have been so valuable, it would have been considered possibly even like a family heirloom. The most valuable thing our family has passed along from generation to generation. This is like the, the most precious, expensive item that we have. And she takes this. It's worth 200 denarii, uh, 300 denarii, excuse me. Remember, a denarii is one day's wage. This is worth 300. An entire year's salary right here they're holding in their hands. That's how valuable this was. She takes that flask and she breaks it open. You ever, just think about it. She, she, this is worth like, let's just say it's worth $40,000. You know, you've been saving this. Maybe it's a, a bottle of wine. There's bottle of, bottles of wine that are worth like tens of thousands of dollars like this. I've never seen one, but I've heard stories. <laughs> right? Oh, it's a special occasion. Let's bust out one of these $40,000 bottles of wine. That's kind of like what she's doing at this moment. This, this perfume is worth $40,000, and she breaks it open. Well, it's possible that's the only way you could get it open. Like it was sealed in such a way that you had to break it to open it. But I don't think that's what's happening here. Most people think that this was broken in a dramatic way. Like, because you wouldn't, you wouldn't break it in such a way that you couldn't reseal it because you wouldn't use all of that perfume at once, typically. But here they, she's breaking it open, saying this is, this is the best way we could spend all of this right now, the best possible use of this flask of pure nard. We're going to break it open as she pours it onto Jesus' head. Because that's the, Jesus was worth every last drop. He undid our nightmare. He is worth it. I want to show him as much appreciation as I possibly can. And this is, this is the way I can maximize it the most. Pours it on his head and she's not done. We're, if we read in John's gospel about this moment, we're given a few more details not only did she pour it on his head, it says that she anointed his feet and she wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. This would have been so strong. I always think about how bad everything must have smelled back then. <laughs> like, can you imagine how stanky all that stuff was back then? Like nobody's showering and stuff. It must have just stunk all the time. They didn't know. But here's the opposite extreme, this extravagant perfume just poured out and it's just the fragrance fills the entire place the, the the entire house that they're at it just must have just hit them in the face so this was a shocking moment you know her the her body language breaking the flask pouring it on jesus head the smell all their senses and and emotions are they're on red alert as well like wow she's using every means necessary to to create this show-stopping moment to honor Jesus. It was jaw-dropping. Who's objecting? Well, Simon the leper's not objecting. 
Remember, he had leprosy. His life was over. He's seeing this, and he's like, no, that's appropriate. Yeah, that's a good use of that. Maybe it was his idea. Maybe it was his flask. You don't see Lazarus jumping up and stopping anybody in this moment. His nightmare is over. He's thinking, no, that's, that's a great use of that. Do we have any more? Let's pour, let's pour more out. Let's honor Jesus even more. No, but the people who are objecting there are the disciples. The disciples were told specifically in John's gospel, another really important detail, that there is one disciple who is leading this objection. And it's part of this key piece of the puzzle that's going to be really relevant in this, in this story. We're told that Judas, he's the one that objects in this moment. He sees all of this going down, and he's like, no, no. Now he, he's, we, we, could, we could sell that. Isn't it such a practical argument? It's good. We could sell that for 300 denarii, and we could give to poor people. This is the Passover feast. When you come to celebrate the Passover, you're supposed to give alms to the poor. So we could sell this right now. Think of all the people we could help with that. What are you doing? He's objecting to it with this very reasonable objection that actually appeals to you and I, if we're really being honest. You're frugal, aren't you? Don't you like to save money and use coupons and get the deal? And You don't want to waste money. Wasting money, that's like the biggest sin we could possibly think of, right? So even this argument, if we're being honest, we're like, yeah, that's reasonable. That, man, this, what, are, what are they doing? Well, Judas, we're told in, in John chapter 12, verse 6, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself what was put into it. Greed. He didn't want that wasted because he could spend it on himself. He didn't care about the poor. He just wanted to use a creative argument that was appealing to people around them, and it worked. It worked. It said they scolded her. It wasn't just Judas scolding her in that moment. They bought into this argument, this practical argument that sounded good, and they began to scold her. Again, now just think about that moment, this jaw-dropping, like, once-in-a-lifetime moment. I can't believe she just broke that and poured it on his head, poured it on his feet, and then wiped his feet with her hair. This is such an, an incredibly shocking moment, and they're scolding her in the midst of it. Imagine being Mary there. How vulnerable would you feel in that moment? This posture of humility that she's displaying, that she's down on her hands and knees just expressing gratitude, pouring this perfume on his feet and wiping it away with her own hair. Uh, in Hebrew culture, like a woman's hair, that was her glory. And she's just humbling herself. Her, her body language is, is just incredibly humble. And she's being scolded in the very moment by the people she respected the most. I can just imagine her in that moment just kind of shrinking back like again just such a vulnerable moment and being shamed in the in the midst of that must have been almost terrifying i think for her well jesus is not gonna have it he's got something to say about it listen to this in verse six but jesus said leave her alone why do you trouble her she has done a beautiful thing to me for you always have the poor with you and whenever you want you can do good for them but you will not always have me she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in her memory. So Judas, 
Jesus can see right through that immediately, just like he can see right through you and I. He sees right through him. He sees the heart of the issue, and he, and he, he, he protects her. She's done a beautiful thing. She's done a beautiful thing. Like, is, and then, then he talks about, you can give to the poor whenever you want. I'm not always going to be here. And like, Jesus isn't saying he's against giving alms to the poor. Obviously, that was a part of the, the Passover feast, and, and Jesus gives and gives and gives. But what she is doing is actually giving to the poor more than anyone else in this moment. Like, when we, we outside of this moment here, thousands of years into the future, reading about this and understanding the gospel in its entirety, if you want to give to the poor, you would give to Jesus first and foremost. Because he was the poorest person. He was in the poorest scenario anyone's ever been in. I mean, when you try to figure out rich and poor, those are kind of relative terms anyway. Like when you say someone's rich, well, compared to who? Or they're, they're super poor, but compared to what? I mean, those are hard terms to really define. It kind of depends uh, what your perspective is. But when you understand the perspective of the gospel and how poor Jesus became, she did the most appropriate thing anyone could possibly do in that moment by giving the, the greatest treasure that she had to the poor. Consider how Paul frames it in 2 Corinthians 8 9. For, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. When you consider where Jesus was at in this moment leading up to his death, compared to where he was from. I mean, Jesus condescended from heaven to enter his creation, to help the very people who would end up rejecting him and killing him. He, he died for them a sinner's death on the cross. So when you compare where he was to where he ended up, there has never been such an extreme case of poverty ever. He was from one spectrum to the other. So the, another lesson I don't want us to miss here, though, I think it's interesting to think about how it, within two pages of the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus impressed by two moments of people giving. And both moments are, are women. We remember just in a, a couple pages before, they're in the temple there. They're, they're, they're people watching. They're, they're in the temple. And, and this uh, poor widow, she puts in those two coins that add up to a penny. Right? Two small copper coins which make a penny. And what does Jesus say about that? I mean, just this insignificant chump change. Right? Couldn't buy anything. He says, that widow, wow, that poor widow has put more in that offering plate than anyone here. Such a lesson on giving. What a seemingly insignificant gift is so impressive to Jesus. And yet here, uh, we, we see another woman humbling herself. But she's actually giving something of extreme value, something that's worth a year's salary, $40,000. She just spends on Jesus in this extravagant way in this moment, and he is equally impressed with the giving. That's such, a, such an important concept to understand when you're, when you're thinking about how you give and what you give. God is not wrapped up in what you give. He's the creator. This is all his. He's wrapped up in the heart behind your gift. So whether you're giving two copper coins that add up to a penny or a whole year's salary all in a single moment, it's the heart behind that gift that God cares about, that matters to him. 
And Mary and the poor widow teach us this incredible lesson. They were participating in worship when they gave. That's what mattered. Their hearts were in the right place they gave, and that was what was, imple- that was, what was pleasing to God, not the dollar amount. And so a great question to ask yourself, regardless of what you're putting in the offering box or giving online, thejourneychurchmarietta.com backslash give. It's not what you give. It's the heart behind that gift, right? It's not about what you give or how much you give. That's not what's pleasing and impressive to God. It's the heart behind that. Just, I, don't, I think that was an interesting compare and contrast since we're, we're within two pages of that moment. But according to Jesus, this gift that Mary gives, it, it, it has such incredible meaning so far beyond what she even understood in that moment. He says, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Isn't that incredible? Like that's another predictive prophecy that we see from Jesus. And it's being fulfilled right now as we're studying the Bible. Thousands of years later, what she has done in this moment, people are still going to be talking about it. Anywhere the gospel is proclaimed, people are going to be talking about this moment. They're going to be inspired by this moment. They're going to be changed by this moment in time. And it's true. It's happening right now. But what makes her act of humility and praise isn't just, isn't just that she spent so much of what they owned in that single moment. It's that she was ultimately anointing his body beforehand for burial. Put yourself in the moment. Jesus said that out loud. He said that out loud for everyone to hear. There's disciples there. Simon the leper's there. Lazarus, who's been raised from the dead, is there. Mary and Martha are there. They're listening to Jesus in this moment. And he says to all of them, they all hear, comprehend, think about what he's saying. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Yet again, he says out loud, I've come here to die. In John's gospel, you're reading several times up to this point, the hour is drawing near, the hour is drawing near. And then you start reading, the hour has come. The hour is near, it's here. It is the hour. And she has just prepared my body for burial. Because that's what you would think of with perfumes oftentimes, is you would use this to to prepare a body for burial. How How did they process that? What were they thinking when Jesus said that? This shocking moment, the, the, the fragrance is so strong and like so many things are happening. What are they thinking in that moment? This is just speculation. I think this was the moment Judas snapped. I think this was the moment, I think Judas has been on the fringe for a while now. That some frustration has been building. But this just went too far and I think when Jesus for Judas this went too far I think Jesus when he said that she has prepared my body for burial I think Judas had these zealot tendencies he wanted to have that Messiah who would take over build an army conquer Rome get out from underneath their thumb and be able to be free uh, and, and the nation to be free once again and when Jesus said this I think Judas was just like he's just given up there's no way this works out well or this ends well with him dying. That makes no sense. I think he was so disappointed in Jesus that he wasn't this insurrectionist that he had hoped for to start this revolt. I think he snapped in that moment. That's just me speculating. I, I, but I wonder, I, I just wonder, did he storm out of the room? Did he stomp his feet? Did he you know, give some kind of, express some kind of body language as he was leaving there in that moment, just of disgust. 
I don't know. But we're told this moment, and we're, we're, we're encouraged by Mark to study this moment because this is the moment that the chief priests and the scribes and the Herodians and people of that ilk who wanted to destroy Jesus, this was the moment they needed. Because sandwiched on both sides of the story, Mark is teaching us about how they got that last piece of the puzzle. Read verses 10 through 11. It said, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him, betray him to them. Betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So here the chief priests and the scribes, they were already seeking a way to arrest Jesus. They didn't know how they were going to get it done. How can we do this in stealth boat? We don't know. This was a major problem for them. And then Judas shows up at their doorstep, and they're like, that's it. That's it. We've been searching for a way to do this for years. I think the plan is finally coming together. They were offering him money. He ended up getting 30 pieces of silver. We learned that from the other Gospels. So maybe it was just greed that got Judas in the moment. Maybe, maybe it is that simple. But they, in that moment, they, these, these scribes and, and chief priests, they had a plan in place as of right now. It was complete. It was ready to go. We got the plan. And they're going to execute that plan perfectly. It's going to go just the way they wanted it to. But what they didn't know is that their plan that they've been scheming and preparing and plotting for all of that time, they finally got it in place, it was just part of a bigger plan that they didn't even know about. Because there was another plan that was put in place before the foundation of the world. Another plan that was put together before the earth was formed, set into motion by God to save his people from their sins. You know, just at the, at the sermon at at Pentecost, when Peter is preaching, this is how he preached to these people. He, he knew they were plotting and scheming and planning, but when he talks about the gospel, he talks about that bigger plan that they didn't even know they were a part of in all of their plotting and scheming. Just imagine these people that put together this plan, listening to Peter preach this. This Obviously, after all of this has happened, this is, this is at Pentecost, Peter says, Men of Israel! Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Not your plan. He wasn't delivered up according to your plan. That was just a little piece. That was a little piece in a bigger plan. He was delivered up to the definite plan of God and foreknowledge of God. It says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God's definite plan was what was executed perfectly. This is how he saves us. This is how he redeems us. And so the question I want to leave you with today, today is how do you respond to this perfectly executed plan? You know, when we look in this story, we really see these different approaches to Jesus. Which one do you fit into? Some people, when they hear the gospel of Jesus, when they see the popularity it, it receives and the attention that it receives, it, they, they respond to it in hostility, just like the scribes and the chief priests. They want to do anything they can to snuff it out, to stop it, to rebuke it. Some, some people respond like Judas, they seemingly grow up in it. They hear it. They know 
the gospel. You think Judas didn't know the gospel? I mean, he hears the gospel preached every time Jesus preaches. But there just comes a point in which Judas rejects it, betrays Jesus. And I think a lot of people respond to Jesus in the same way today. They grow up hearing it. They, they grow up associated with it. Their family's there. They, they, they're kind of Christian, but they just come to this point in which they just turn their back on it and walk away. And they betray the gospel that they were raised up to believe. Maybe some people respond like those disciples. They exist around it, but they're just kind of indifferent in, in, in moments. But then there are others, and this is what I think we all want to strive for as believers today, that respond with this extravagant devotion to the gospel, like Mary. Mary had this beautiful display of honor and praise, one that I'm like, have I ever even come close to worship and honor like that towards Jesus? I'm ashamed of myself when I think about it. What have I done to, to, to express my gratitude for my salvation that even comes close to this? Yet this is the posture we are called to live in. This is the posture that it's stories like this in the Bible that change how we think about our devotion and how we express it. What expense should we spare for time and talents and treasures to show Jesus our gratitude and to, to change the world we live in and how we express this gratitude and worship. And so let's examine our hearts today as we go into a time of worship. If you feel conviction and you invite that type of, of feeling and thought process into your heart and mind, when you take communion, that's where we're, we're convicted and restored by the gospel and changed by the gospel. So let's, let's walk into a communion time together with that in mind. Let's pray. Lord, again, I thank you for these incredible moments in the Gospel of Mark. Just an amazing, amazing moment in Scripture that teaches us so much about what it means to worship, that convicts us in so many ways because it's often, Lord, as we study this moment, we can relate more to Judas and the disciples or possibly even the chief priests and scribes more than we can Mary. But Lord, I pray that through the study of this and by the power of you, the Holy Spirit, we can be changed, that we can change the way that we think and that we could worship with the heart that is pleasing to you, no matter what we put in the offering plate or, or how we serve in the church or, or just whatever it may be, Lord, that we can do these things with the right heart. So it's only by your grace and by your gospel that we're able to do this. So bless us and help us to think through these things as we contemplate what you've done for us. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Mm -hmm.